you so much for your many blessings. And, and Lord, we thank you that we can come to a place like this and, and come freely to worship you. And Father, we thank you. I, I thank you that we can come to a place like this and, and just be surrounded with others who love you, who worship you. And, and Lord, we just thank you for this special time of just meeting with you through song. And Father, meeting with you through the reports that we're hearing going on around the world. Father, we thank you that we are a church that desires to carry out the calling that you've placed on us, Father, to reach the world. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can be seated. Well, let me just say this. I tell you, probably one of the greatest privileges it is for church is to be able to send out people who continue to spread the gospel. And, of course, we've heard from Tammy and uh, Brandon this morning, and what a joy it is to have them here. Uh, and also Andrew and Jada Renfro. They are here with us this morning. They are some that have been sent out from us. Uh, Andrew was uh, ordained through our church several years ago, and he's been out on ministry, he and Jada. And it's so good to have them here back with us here today. And uh, it's just a joy to see God send those out. And uh, we've definitely been a church that's been able to, and had the privilege to do that. And uh, I hope you'll pray for these that are sent out. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Now, let me just say this this morning. We're going to do a good old-fashioned Bible study. All right? We're going to cover the whole chapter of Daniel chapter 4. And there's a lot of verses associated with this, with this uh, passage that we're looking at today. And so normally we take four or five verses. Today we're taking 30-some verses. So we'll get through it, all right? But today we're going to continue our series called Character in the Making. And today we're going to be looking at the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and how it related to his successes and his accomplishments. We're literally going to do a contrast between Daniel, who we know is one of good characters we saw last week, and King Nebuchadnezzar and how they did deal with their successes. So if you will, look at the introduction on your outline. How a person defines success and how they respond to success reveals much about their character. So, so let's start with that first part of the, 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 the question there. How do you define success? How do you define success? And then a second question is, how do you handle yourself when success or maybe accomplishments come your way? How do you handle that? Uh, how do you define and how do you respond and how do you handle this? Now, Daniel was one of those people who handled their successes very well. And the reason he did is because he saw his successes, he saw his accomplishments in the context of his life of how God was leading him. It was not anything in and of Daniel himself. It was as God was leading him to carry out his life. And from that, there were successes and there were accomplishments along the way. But I want us to look at King Nebuchadnezzar. How, how did it play out for him? His story is very interesting in the Bible. Because what you're going to find, you're going to find a king, literally a king of an of a empire, literally come basically to the point where he submits himself to the one true God. It's a beautiful story in Scripture. So look on your outline. First of all, we see a king's prelude. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, many believe he is probably in his 70s at this time. 
Daniel, it appears, is in his mid-50s. And, and what's interesting about that is in Daniel chapter 1, we believe we're looking at Daniel when he was 15 or 16 years of age. So now if you fast forward almost 40 years later, you're finding Daniel still accomplishing much for the kingdom, still having successes, and he's handling the successes very well. But in chapter 4, we find King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, and here's what I want you to keep in mind. His testimony is about to go out before all the people of the land, and it, it's a, the expanse of it is pretty great when you think about it. So look at Nebuchadnezzar chapter 4, look at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now what you're doing is you're reading these verses, this passage from King Nebuchadnezzar after he came through great difficulty to humble himself before the one true God. He's basically giving his testimony. He's going to talk about his life before God and his faith in God, his life and how he came about to his faith in God, and then what his life is like now. It's just like our testimonies would be if we've truly followed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our life before Christ, how we came to Christ, and how we are living for him now. We have the same thing happening here in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 4. So we are basically going to witness a powerful pagan king that comes to faith in God, and now we are reading his testimony. Next, we see a king's preoccupation. Now, I just want to ask you, have you ever had a dream that terrified you or horrified you? You ever had a dream like that? I've, I've had those dreams. Matter of fact, I have crazy dreams. I don't know about you. I have crazy dreams. I, I don't know what it is. I dream about this place all the time. Evidently, I think about this place too much. But, but anyway, I do. And it seems like it always surrounds me humiliating myself in this position. <laughs> uh, but there's so many times I'll dream about being in this room and knowing I'm supposed to be on the stage at a certain time and I just can't quite get there. And all night, I'm frustrated. How many of you have those type of dreams where you just can't quite get somewhere? It's that way all the time in here for me for some reason. And then there's those times I, I, forget, I lose my notes. That's horrifying to me. I mean, I mean, there's all kinds of things. But how many of you had those dreams that did just kind of stick with you? And they don't just go away. I, I remember a dream I had even as a teenager, uh, looking back on it now and, and, and trying to make sense of it. And, and it, was, it was pretty horrifying. And I think many of us possibly have those things. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream which seems to haunt him. He literally, according to the text, becomes obsessed with this dream. The first thing I want you to see on your outline is the impressions of the dream. Look at verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. That means things were good. Everything was great. And I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Some of your translations may even say tormented me. There was something that was there. Everything seemed to be in place. My kingdom was flourishing. Life could not get any better. 
And then all of a sudden, I have this horrifying dream. It is interesting that the most powerful man in the region of the world at that time is afraid. How many of you ever seen those documentaries on how they take care of the president of the United States? I love to watch that kind of stuff. How the Secret Service works and how everything is it's organized and how when a president shows up somewhere, many times Secret Service goes out as much as a week to two weeks ahead of time just to kind of survey what kind of conditions they're going to be dealing with. I mean, it is immaculate how they take care of the president. Nebuchadnezzar would have been one of those that would have had a secret service. He would have been one of those who had an army at his disposal. Not only that, we're about to look at some other things that were there to keep him safe that would probably blow our mind. And he was one of those that, that probably of all the people in the world, he had a reason not to be afraid. But this one dream has terrified him. Next, we see the information of the dream. Well, what is so horrifying? Well, look at verse 6. He says, therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might, might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, uh, the soothsayers came in and I told them to dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Now, I want you to think about this. There, there could be that they had some ideas about what the dream was, uh, what it really meant. But they weren't going to share what it meant. It wasn't good news. That's one thing you do. You don't look at the most powerful man in the world and tell him bad news when he can say off with the head. I mean, it, there could have been some of that going on. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belshazzar's chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretations. These were the visions of my head on my, on, while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. It reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And as I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven, and he cried aloud and said thus. Now, before we go any further, let's clear up or make sense of some of these things. First of all, what he's talking about when it comes to this tree, many people believe that it's actually a reference to Nebuchadnezzar himself and the influence that he has throughout the Babylonian empire. And by the time you get to this stage in Nebuchadnezzar's life, the expanse of the empire is fully realized at this time. Probably up to this point in history, there's been no greater empire than the Babylonian empire at this time. And so he's talking about its influence, he's talking about its greatness and how it's seen all throughout the earth. But then in verse 13, we see that he's talking about a watcher, a holy one. Most commentators believe that this is basically the angels. There's some angel dealings going on. And there's something that's being shown to him through the angels. In verse 14, he cried aloud and said thus, 
chop down the tree and cut it off, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let's let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, this is key, the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. Basically, what he's saying is take away the effectiveness of the tree and what it offers, but don't kill it. Leave the root system. Matter of fact, protect the root system, protect the stump itself, but he takes away the influence of the tree. And then it says, in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with dew of heaven. That means let it be taken care of. And then it says this, and let him graze with the beast. All of a sudden, there's a transition out of nowhere where it appears that Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the tree. He is now a beast. On the grass of the earth, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. And let seven times pass over him. That's seven years. This decision is by decree of the watchers, the angels, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. Give it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. Do you know what that last part is saying? God is in control. It doesn't matter what man may say. It doesn't matter how powerful a person may be here in this world. God is still over that person. God is still in control. How many of you find comfort in our world in today's day? Well, you can find comfort in that, right? God is still in control. And so we see that this dream, there's there's this information from this dream. We see uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's desperation, and then we see the dream. But then we come, look on the outline, to the interpretation of the dream. Look at verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Now that's pretty cool. Isn't that pretty cool? Pagan king looks at Daniel and says, the one true God is with you. He's, he's given you the answer, hadn't he? He's basically looking for the answer. And he acknowledged Daniel and, and his God. Then Daniel, whose, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for a time and his thoughts troubled him. That means Daniel knew what the interpretation of the dream was. It meant that he's going to have a hard time communicating this to this king. And so the king spoke and said about Caesar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. He's basically like, just tell me what, what, is, what it means. And then Daniel says, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. I don't know about you, but if I was Nebuchadnezzar, I probably at that point would swallow very deeply, wouldn't you? And I'm sure he was sitting there just sitting on the edge with anticipation. But you know something? This, this dream has horrified uh, Nebuchadnezzar so long that he doesn't care what it is. Just tell me what it means. How many of you have ever been in that situation? It's horrified, it's horrified you. you. You've been waiting and all of a sudden, just tell me. That's what we have here. Verse 20. Here's the interpretation. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, 
in which, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt. And in those branches, the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king. Now, how many of you would say, uh-oh, <laughs> that tree was chopped down. <laughs> that influence was taken. It says, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times, seven years pass over him. You see, here's what's interesting about Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what was getting ready to happen, this dream and its fulfillment and all the things that surrounded this dream came from where? He knew it came from heaven. He knew it came from God. And then it says in verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that, that they shall drive you from, your, from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times you'll pass over you, that's seven years, till you know, till you come to know the most high rules in the kingdom of men. And gives it to whomever he chooses. Basically, you know what heaven's getting ready to do to you? Heaven's getting ready to humble you. Heaven's getting ready to come upon you in such a way that you're going to realize that there is one most high God. And he is still over you no matter how powerful you are on this earth. That's what's happening here. And then he goes on and says in verse 26, And inasmuch as they give, gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Now think about that. Your kingdom's going to be safe. It's going to lay in waiting, basically, until you come to a proper understanding of the true God. Therefore, O king, verse 27, let my advice be acceptable to you, break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. I want you to think about what's happening here. Basically, there seems to be this dream does not have to come and be fulfilled. King, it's up to you to determine what happens next. That God has put this as a warning in front of you. And that's what we find. So we see the interpretation of the dream. Now, this was a warning, but it was obvious that nothing changed in the king's heart. He still went about his normal life. He still believed he was his own man, that his successes were his own. Now, keep in mind that this is a familiar story, and it possibly could relate to many of us in this room as it relates to pride. Let me say this about pride. Did you know that God hates pride? Have you ever wondered why God, hate, God hates pride? Some of, some of you may say, well, God doesn't want to be uh, uh, outshone. God does, God, only God wants to be glorified. And if I have my pride here, I'm going to try to glorify myself. Now, there's something to that. But do you know the main reason why God hates pride? God hates pride because it, listen, makes you an enemy of God. When we allow pride in our hearts... No matter what we've accomplished, no matter what we've done, for the kingdom or not for the kingdom, the kingdom of God even, if pride is there, there is always 
there's always this, 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 this enmity between us and God. There's always this struggle between us and God. Not only that, if pride takes over our heart, there's also a struggle between us and others. I mean, pride leads us to destruction. We hear that many times. So Proverbs 11 says this, when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. And then Proverbs 29, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Basically, if you were to apply this verse, this last verse of Nebuchadnezzar, it could read this. Hey, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, if you maintain your pride, God's going to bring you down. God will bring you down. But if you'll humble yourself, he'll let you retain your honor. I mean, he's basically putting it out there. It's really up to Nebuchadnezzar what happens next. Now, these verses are being played out in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. So look on your outline. Next, we see a king's pride. Look at verse 28. And this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Now, now I want you to think about this. When When did Daniel... Give the interpretation. When did Daniel say, King, you may want to repent. You may want to repent. God gives him 12 months to repent. God gives him 12 months to to humble himself. Did it happen? Obviously not. Obviously not. Look, Look at verse 29 again. And at the end of 12 months, he's walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Evidently, the horrifying images of the dream have worn off. Evidently, he's forgot about the warning from Daniel. And there he is. He basically vocalizes his death, well, not his death warrant, but his, his, the way God's going to bring him down. So Babylon, during this, seven, during this period, and this is one thing we need to understand, was called one of the seven ancients of the, ancient wonders of the world. When you look back, this was one of the ancient wonders, the city that Nebuchadnezzar built. It, it had such a remarkable thing as it relates to the even modern day that Saddam Hussein, do you remember Saddam Hussein? Nebuchadnezzar was his hero. All this that we're talking about happens there where Saddam ruled. Matter of fact, Saddam believed he was Nebuchadnezzar II. He even classed, he called himself that. And so we have all this. What, what happened back there has traveled into modern day where there are those who are trying to emulate what Nebuchadnezzar tried to do. Now, here's some things I want you to understand. When I give you this information, I want you to see why Nebuchadnezzar felt the way he felt. Listen to this. The walls around the city, this is a description that we have, were a football field height. 300 feet high were the walls. Now, think about that. That's almost 30 stories. You ever seen a 30-story building? That's how high these walls are. 56 miles in circumference. Think about that. That's a big wall. <laughs> and not only that, I want, you to, I want you to think about this. I went and did a little research on the I-485 Beltway around Charlotte. 67 miles. That's, that's a lot. There's a lot inside that. 
We're talking about 56 miles for this city. Listen to this. Four chair, horse chariots could race side by side on the top of the walls. They were 90 feet wide. People lived inside the walls. Now, that was not unheard of. That happened in a lot of ancient walled cities. The palace itself was 630,000 square feet. It had a banquet hall that could seat 10,000 people. Pretty impressive. He had something called famous hanging gardens. Do you, really, you know why he built those gardens? Because one of his queens was homesick for the mountain area that she came from. So he decided to build these gardens that kind of looked like mountains for her. They were 100 foot by 100 foot and 75 foot high. These big gardens that were hanging. There were 17 temples to pagan gods. And so while on the patio of his palace, he should have been thanking God for what he saw. But instead, he was basically looking out, looking and saying, look at my accomplishments. Look at my successes. Well, think about that. I mean, he did accomplish a lot, right? Just as Nebuchadnezzar, we can have the wrong perception of our successes. I want to ask you a question. How do you view your accomplishments? How do you view your successes? Some of you may be sitting here and you're, maybe you're saying, well, you know, I don't really have a whole big old list of those things. So God's keeping me humble. I just don't have a lot. <laughs> I mean, that could be some of us, but, but let's face it. Some of us, we've, we've done some things. God's allowed us to do some things with our life. I want you to think about it. From the world's standard, there was no one higher on the ladder of success than King Nebuchadnezzar. He was on the top. And so I want to show you some things that happens. Look on your outline. The focus of his success was to impress others. Look at what I've done. What do you think of me? I want you to think about it. So much of our focus in life is, is based on what other people think of us. Uh, listen, again, uh, social media can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. But sometimes social media can just be, look at me. Look at how I've successful I am. And it's kind of like I said before. Give us the whole story every once in a while. <laughs> Tell us some bad stuff, please. We'll feel better about ourselves, you know. But it is. Sometimes we just kind of put the best foot forward and, and we do all these things. Look at what I've done. Are we, are we, what do we do? Are we trying to impress others? How about this? Motivation of success to invest in self. It was all about Nebuchadnezzar. Think about how many times he was talking about what I've done, what I've done. You see it in these verses. Did you know Satan, when he fell from heaven, had the same lingo? Ah, ah, ah. And that's what we find. Psychology Today surveyed 20,000 of its readers and asked, how do you measure success? How do you keep score when it comes to success? 74%, almost three out of four said, the way they keep score is by money and possessions, by what they have. That's how they keep score. And it sounds right, right? In the society we live in. Next, the standard of his success, to be in competition with others. King Nebuchadnezzar conquered nations and built his empire until there was no one left in the world that could be compared to him. There was no one else. He won, basically. For many of us, the way we know we are successful is by how we're doing compared to others, don't we? Well, I'm doing better than such and such. Well, man, I think I'm winning now. Whoop, 
they done bought a new car. Oh, my goodness. What are we going to do? I'm serious. We, it's amazing how it plays. We compare our possessions. We compare our careers. We can even get sick enough to compare our children. Well, where our children are is compared to other people's children. King Solomon once said this in Ecclesiastes 4.4. 4, 4. It's a paraphrase. He said, I observe that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. It's like, what's the point? When God, listen to this. When God is molding us into his image, he has a way of stripping away everything. Y'all, I've been in this church for 30 years. I've known people for 30 years. I've seen this happen in people's lives. I've seen it happen. Where there's this, maybe a measure of pride in a person's life. Or maybe there's this thing that, and all of a sudden there comes a point in their life where all of a sudden God begins to say, you know something, I want more for you. I want you to quit trusting in, in what you have. I want you to quit trusting and trying to impress people. I, I want, we're going to make this about me and you. And I've seen that in people's lives. I've also heard people say this. It was the most difficult time in their life, but it was also the best time in their life. That's when they began to see who they truly were and who God truly was. So we see this. Next, the power of his success to depend on self. In verse 28, King Nebuchadnezzar reaches this moment in his life where he's at the top of the ladder. He's just looking out over his kingdom and, he's, and basically saying, this is what I've accomplished by my mighty power. He was totally dependent upon himself. Next, the purpose of his success, to glorify self. This is, how many, uh, this is how many climb the ladder of success. They, they say their success is all about impressing others, winning the comparison competition, being self-empowered, personal gain, personal advancement, self-achievement. That's the way they look at life. It's one big competition. This is where King Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in Daniel chapter 4. He has made it to the top, but we'll find that that's not a good place to be. Not a good place to be. And here's what we need to understand. His successes and his accomplishments actually deceived him. Deceived him. And, and that's the same thing that happens in us, with us. Next, we see a king's penalty. Look at verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth, this is him standing there on the balcony saying, look what I've done. A voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Uh, think about it, immediately. He probably thought he got away with it. He probably thought 12 months ago it was just a fluke. He, he probably said, well, God's not going to do that. Even if I did believe him, I don't think he's going to do it. I mean, we're 12 months on the other side of this. But God gave him 12 months to repent, but all of a sudden... God said enough. Did you know God could say enough to us? Did you know that God could say, you know something, I, I, I've given you enough rope, I, I, I've given you enough time, I, I've let you, give you time to, to repent, to get things right, to, and then God says, okay, that's enough, we're, we're going to fix this. And that's exactly what God's doing here. And then it says in verse 32, it says, and they shall drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times, seven years shall pass over you until you know, you know what? That the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. 
Wow, that's a word for the day. Verse 33, that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. He literally became a beast. He basically went mad. So we see the king's penalty. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. It doesn't say there's a good chance they could be humbled. It says they will be. And he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Will be exalted. Next, we see a king's praise. Everything's getting ready to change. Look at verse 34. And at the end of the time, that's seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. He finally saw it the way he was supposed to see it. And when he said it's from generation to generation, he's basically saying it's much bigger than I am. Because I won't live forever. God is God. And so we see the king's praise. In Psalm 121, it says, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from which comes my help. My help comes from the Lord. And that's the place where Nebuchadnezzar got. He got to the point where he had no other thing to do but do what? Look up. And many of you can relate to this story. From his trouble, King Nebuchadnezzar learned some valuable lessons about his successes. Next, pur uh, purpose of his success, to glorify God. This is how Daniel viewed his success. Whatever success that comes your way, listen, is an opportunity for you to pass all the credit along to the Lord. It really is. How many of you see some of these athletes sometimes? They get out there. You know, I want to thank the Lord Jesus. Gave me the ability to have, to have this athleticism to be able to perform on the field. I mean, you hear it in so many different ways, don't you? I don't know about you, but I, I like that. Provided they behave themselves when they're on the field, right? But I do. I like that. I, I, there's a measure of respect that goes out. You hear NASCAR. I want to thank uh, uh, the Rainbow Warriors. I, I want to thank uh, Nabisco for uh, putting their advertisement on the lid of the truck, I mean, of the car. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I want to thank Sunoco for the gas. I want to thank Goodrich for the tires. I mean, this is just a team effort. I mean, oh, and by the way, I want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, they, they eventually, NASCAR, they always get to Jesus at some point. But anyway. <laughs> Even if it is after Clorox and anyway. <laughs> You're either going to hate me or love me for making that statement. I don't <laughs> Anyway. But the point is, when we give God the glory, we're, we're literally saying we live in the context of God. Our life is in the context of who God is. Next, the power of his success to depend on God. U.S. Today surveyed what they called senior corporate executives with a high net worth and ask them, what do you credit your success to? Here were the top three answers. Hard work, higher IQ, <laughs> and luck. That's what they said. 
Whatever success we have in this life is only by the grace of God. You've heard me say this many times. And, um, if my children finish well, it's only by the grace of God. Because they did not have perfect parents. My wife blew it so many times. <laughs> I wouldn't say that if she was here. She's in here. She's laughing. Y'all see. She's laughing, right? No. No, but really, I mean, when you, when you think about it, it, is there really anything that we've perfectly done well? I mean, just one part could, could, could destroy whatever's out there. And yet, it's God's grace that allows any success or any accomplishment we have. Nebuchadnezzar learned his, his lesson. He puts it this way. Look at verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Doesn't matter who you are, you can be king of Babylon. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can resist his hand or say to him, What have you done? Did he come around to the proper perspective? Absolutely. Next, the standard of his success to be faithful to God. Someone was asked, how do you measure the success of your work? The person responded, I don't remember that the Lord ever spoke of success. He always, however, spoke of faithfulness. Our success is really, when you think about it, measured by our faithfulness, our faithfulness to God. Next, the motivation of his success, to invest in others. When Daniel warns King Nebuchadnezzar about the changes he needed to make, listen, he tells him to have mercy on those who are oppressed. So when success comes our way, we should not ask, what can I get with this success? But what can I give away because of this success? What can I give to others? How can I help others? Next, the focus of his success is to please God. In life, whose applause are you living for? Have you ever thought about that? Whose applause are you living for? How many of you love to hear this? Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Wouldn't you like to hear that one at the end of all this? Look at verse 36 and 37. At the same time, my reason returned to me. When I saw things the way I was supposed to, when I repented, when I, when I did what I was supposed to do, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. That means all the power they had, they gave it back. I was restored to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in, in pride, he is able to what? Put down. Did he learn his lesson well? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we see the focus of it to please God. In closing, let me just say, Nebuchadnezzar had received as much light and knowledge of God as any man could receive. But here's the thing. He still did not humble himself, right? Initially, he didn't get it right. I mean, he had everything. I mean, what he needed to know, he needed to know. God even gave him 12 months. And he still didn't get it right. He's like most Americans today. How many times are we going to have to hear the gospel before we come to salvation in Jesus Christ? 
How many times are we going to have to realize a full brunt of being blessed to live in a country that, that still allows us to worship freely and, and have some of the things that we have? I mean, we do. We, God has bestowed himself upon us in such a way. And yet we just kind of expect it to just keep happening. There's a limit to the patience and mercy of God when it comes to those who walk in disobedience, when it comes to those who don't live their life in the context of who he is. So here's the application. A person who walks by faith with God realizes that their successes are not their own. They're not their own. As with the case with Daniel, many times others will take notice of their faith and, of their faith and acknowledge the God of their success. Listen, I believe that God knew he could do a great work in Nebuchadnezzar. And he, you may say, well, you're limiting God. No, I'm looking at the full picture. I believe God was able to do what he was able to do in Nebuchadnezzar's life because he had a sold-out person with faith that stood with courage to face this king and give that king the word of God. I'm convinced of that. And Daniel was one of those low, meek people you never read in a story where, where he, he blows character because he had pride. No, he just does. He was just faithful to what God called him to. And that's what he's calling us to. And y'all, that faith is what builds our character. Again, let me close with this. God hates pride. And the reason he hates it is not because he's the glory seeker necessarily. The reason he hates it is because he knows the destruction it can bring into your life. If you think you can save yourself and go out into eternity because you think you're a good person, you're sadly mistaken. There has to come a point in which you humble yourself, acknowledge that you're a sinner, and place your faith in a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Repenting of your sins and giving your life to God through Jesus. That's what it's all about. And then let's just look at it this from this perspective. There's some of you, you've been believers for a long time. Yeah. And, and you know God's work has worked in your life before. And you know God wants to work in your life in the future. He's always molding us. But one thing God will deal with you harshly about is this, your pride. You say, how do you know that? I've watched it happen in people's lives. If you have pride there, he's going to come after it. Because he knows the potential destruction that it can bring to your life. He knows as long as pride is in your life, he knows that y'all will be at war with one another. He knows as long as pride is in your life that you'll never be that, that person he desires you to be in other people's lives because there's always going to be something that's missing. There's always going to be something you're going to be at war about because there's pride in your life. Why don't you give that to him today? I want to ask the ushers to come forward if they will. Would you bow with me this morning? Father, we just come to you and Lord, we just come and Lord, I just pray if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, they've never humbled them this, themselves to say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I pray that today before they leave this room, that they'll come to me right here in this room and just say, I need to get saved. Father, I pray if there's a believer that's here in this room and right now uh, they, they, they believe they received that warning some time ago. They, they believe that, that there was something that God identified in their life that he desired to be changed, but they continued the same way. They've never taken the time to repent and turn from that. Father, help them to know that, that God's mercy, it is new every day and it extends greatly, but there comes a time when God says that's enough. 
I pray, Lord, for those that are here today that know, deep down in the back of their mind, they know that, that they've gone further than they need to go with their pride. Father, help them to humbly come to you. And Father, we thank you for just what we've been a part of here today, hearing from Brandon and Tammy and their ministry. Father, we thank you we get to be a part of that. And Father, we just pray that you'll take this offering and use it as we continue to do what you call us to do to reach people. In Jesus' name, amen.